If you have your Bibles, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to take a short break from our study in 2 Timothy and uh, look at the first 18 verses of Genesis 22, a familiar passage to, to most of us about the story of Abraham and Isaac. And to begin our time, I'll share with you um, a little bit about our experience as, uh, in our family with Serena and I. Um, a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to be interviewed by KKLA and to recount our uh, foster parenting experience. And um, that was really a joy for us. In the busyness of our lives, we quick forget God's faithfulness to us uh, during that time. Let me just share with you a little, little bit uh, of what we experienced uh, a few years ago. Uh, when we were, my wife and I were dating, I don't know why, God put in our hearts to uh, care for orphans. And if God allowed to adopt an orphan ourselves. And God used many uh, avenues to plant that seed in our hearts. Um, we, we, we saw a 60-minute special about adoption parties. All these foster kids who are waiting to be adopted, they don't have parents. And so because there are so many kids and few, few, so few parents, they have these adoption parties where they collect all these foster kids to play with uh, prospective parents uh, that they might adopt them. And they're interviewing these little kids, and they knew like only the cute kids or the well-dressed kids, well-behaved kids get adopted. So they would like comb their hair and put their clothes on straight, and they would like hope to be adopted. That really like broke our hearts. And then we saw specials on uh, 2020 about orphans in Romania, and God really gave us a desire to to adopt ourselves. And then two movies um, really. Uh, opened our eyes to fostering and adopting through foster care. Uh, it's kind of a cheesy movie, but actually a quite, a, quite a good movie for fostering. One of the social workers of Olive Crest recommended this movie to, to us. I don't know if you've heard of a White Oleander, right? Nobody. First service, there were some people, Joe, a few others. Uh, and it's a story about this girl that enters the foster system and what she experiences there and with each family, how she changes. Our heart gets hardened with all the experiences that she encounters. And it was a very um, helpful movie to see what the kids go through being part of the system. And the other movie was Antoine Fisher, another movie about a foster, foster boy and his experiences there. So with that, we want to uh, be foster parents. If we remember uh, December 20th, 2005, we had been certified to be foster parents for a few months by then. We were waiting for our first child to take care of. They called us and said there's a eight-day-old uh, boy. He's been exposed to um, crystal meth. His mom was a daily meth user, and uh, she was actually arrested with $300 worth of crystal meth in her car. And when she gave birth, they tested his blood, and there was meth in his system, and that was considered child abuse. So the state took custody, and they asked us if we would take him in. We said, sure. And we'll be at emergency respite care only seven days. The caseworker, Kathy, whom we never saw again, told us in seven days they're going to come back to pick him up. So they wanted us to know that. So we opened our doors to this little boy who was very small but stiff. And we thought, seven days, that's all it is. So um, let's not take out our diaper changing pad. Let's not set up our crib. All those you know, kid things, it's only for a week. 
And then a week became a month. Month became like a year. And then that took us to that journey for two and a half years before we adopted him. At the two-year juncture, there was a court case, important court case. And the judge decided, ruled that Ethan would be returned to his birth mom. And um, that really broke our hearts. You know, I had told Surin early not to give away our heart to this boy. Because, uh, you know, even though I did already, it, it's okay for me to get my heart broken. But my wife's heart can't be broken because she's got to take care of our kids. <laughs> and she's got to take care of me. So, Surin, don't give away your heart. But how is that possible? We had already given away our hearts. We loved this boy. And when we had heard that... Um, he was being re- taken away from us. And all they required is a phone call, a two-hour window, and they come and pick him up, and we won't never see him again. So around that time, every time the phone rang, our hearts dropped a little bit because we wondered, is this the phone call, and we'll never see Ethan again. And uh, I remember that time it was very difficult for us. Our hearts were uh, broken and were melting within us, and... There were, th- there were thoughts where all I want is for Ethan to be adopted. All we want is to be able to keep this boy. And the process was so painful. And we realized then that what our prayers are and God's desires are often at odds. For us, and I'm a, I'm a sinful man, I, I want like comfort. I want my desires fulfilled. I want to be in control. I want, my premium is my happiness. But God's intent is not my happiness, but it's my holiness. God's desire for us is not our comfort, but our faith to grow. God desires not that we be strong, but God desires that we be so weak, we would be forced to depend upon Him. We thought God was trying to kill us. Because taking away something we love so much, but we realized God was trying to save us, sanctify us, make us pure and holy. We discovered God's love is a holy love. And same thing for you. You know, we think uh, God is trying to kill you. And whatever trials you're involved in right now, whatever sorrow, disappointment, heartache, ultimately at the core, it's a test of faith. Are you going to trust that God is a holy God who is also loving? He is a righteous God who is merciful, who is gracious. Um, are you going to trust in Him or trust in yourself? Right? And That God's desire for you and for me is for us to grow in our dependence of Him rather than these things that we prize these things we cherish in our own hearts. We see a great um, example of this actually in the scriptures in Genesis 22. Abraham is the champion of faith. The New Testament makes it clear that Abraham was the first true man of faith. Since Since his time, everyone who trusts in God, Jew or Gentile, is spiritually a child of Abraham, Galatians 3, 7, and 29. All others are partial examples of faith. Abel, Noah, Enoch. 
Abraham is the pattern. He's the prototype of true faith. F.B. Meyer said of this story, as long as men live in the world, they will always turn to this story with unwaning interest. And as we come upon Genesis 22, we discover, we find Abraham taking his final exam in terms of his test of faith. Now, Abraham had been tested before. In Genesis 12, who was his first test? God told him, leave your family, leave your people, leave your nation, and follow me to a place you do not know. And Abraham believed God. He trusted God and followed after him. He was again tested by a famine that left him in Egypt fending for himself. He was tested with his nephew Lot, trusting God that God will provide for him. In spite of uh, Lot's conniving and manipulation of circumstances, he had been tested for 25 years waiting for his first son to be born. This was a great test. You know, the meaning, his, his name before God changed it was Abram. And the meaning of that name is great father. Uh, God changed his name to Abraham. And that means father of many. So here he is, 100 years old, and he's at a party. And they ask him, what is your name? Abraham. Oh, you're a father of many. How many children do you have? I have none. Right? Wow. Like, you know, what? A, very ironic here. Right? There's a sense of irony in his name. How old is your wife? Oh, she is 90. Right? It's a, it's a joke. And yet Abraham did not waver in his faith concerning the promise of God. Romans 4 tells us. He did not waver through unbelief. He was strengthened in his faith. He gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised in spite of his age. So at the age of 100, God gave him his son Isaac. That's where he closed off in chapter 21. In chapter 22, uh, there's about a 20-year separation. So for 20 years, Abraham... And Sarah enjoyed their son Isaac. Uh, Isaac had, has been the delight of his parents' hearts, true to his name. He brought much laughter to this family. And then verse 1. The narrator here, Moses, is careful to tell us that this is a test of Abraham. God calls Abraham and he responds immediately, here I am. But the brightness in the age patriarch fades when he heard God's charge. God said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. God commands Abraham an unthinkable command. Take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love. This is the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. In Genesis 20:13, some translations translate chesed, Hebrew. It's kindness for love. That word is kindness. This word ahab is love. The first time we find the word love in the Bible, it's not love between friends, not love between man or a woman, but a love between a father and his son. And God commanded Abraham, take your only son whom you love, and sacrifice it, Mount Moriah, as a burnt offering to God. 
the land of Moriah is near what would be the city of Jerusalem, a very historic spot. Mount Moriah is the very place where in later years King David bought the threshing floor of Ornan as a place for the site of the temple. On that very place where Abraham offered Isaac, the temple of Solomon was built, 2 Chronicles 3.1. Abraham was instructed to offer Isaac there as a burnt offering. Now, uh, for a Jewish reader, this makes sense. Because God commanded the Old Testament, because of the sins of Israel, all firstborn sons belong to God. They were God's possessions. They belonged to God because of the sins of Israel. Israel Israelite families had three options. They could make burnt sacrifices right, to ransom their son. They can give five shekels, like five silver coins to redeem their son. Or they could commit their firstborn son to serve in the tabernacle or the temple all their years. That's what Hannah did. In 1 Samuel 1, right? she said, God, give me a son, and I will give him back to you. Right? I will not redeem him. I will have him be a priest and serve in the tabernacle all his years. This tradition, this ritual continues to this day. Conservative Jews participate in a ritual called Padian Haben. On the 31st day of their firstborn son's birth date, they have this ritual where the rabbi calls upon the parents and asks what they will do with this son. And parents redeem that son. They buy that son back for five silver coins. Well, what God was telling Abraham was, I'm calling your debt. Right? I'm calling in the debt. You cannot ransom him. I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. He's not calling Abraham to murder Isaac. If, if he had heard a voice saying, murder or, or sacrifice your, your wife, he would know this is not the will of God. This is not the law. But because Isaac was his firstborn, and because of the law, Abraham knew God was fully right, fully justified. Because the sins of, of Israelites and, and, and the family of Abraham, God was fully within his rights to call in this debt. As uh, Abraham heard this, he was, uh, to say the least, shocked. Why such a command? His love for God was being tested. He loved God. That is why he left his nation, left his family. He loved God. That's why he followed him. But now, Abraham was in danger of loving his son on earth more than his father in heaven. He was in danger of loving the gift more than the giver of the gift. And that's always a danger with us. That we will love uh, God's blessings more than God himself. That we will love good things. That we will love things that God has given to us by grace and worship it, prize it, cherish it, love it more than we love God Himself. I heard this, I saw this online a few weeks ago, and you know I'm not a kind of one of those reality TV watchers at all. But when it involves 
one of my favorite teams and one of the players on that team, Lamar Odom, you know, I will spend some time watching it. So I'd heard through LakersGround.net, forum devoted to all things uh, related to Lakers basketball, that Lamar Odom was dating um, some reality star. And so they had a link on there about him talking about the Lakers. I want to watch this, not for the dating part, for the, the sports part. And he was kind of like, they're married now, I guess, but he was courting her and they were talking. And uh, he was telling her that his mom died of cancer when he was 14 or 15 years old. And he was so heartbroken that he played basketball for two days straight. He didn't come home. Right? He didn't come home at all. He stayed at the park 24-7 for two days. And he just played basketball. And he said, basketball got me through uh, the loss of his mom. So we see uh, what basketball means to this basketball player. It's his um, functional savior. It's his drug. It's his refuge. It's his comfort, his solace, his peace. It's what calms his fears, his horror, his loss, his pain. It's what medicates him. Now, we look at that and go, wow, that's so wrong, right? But we, all of us do that. It might not be uh, basketball for you, but it could be um, you know, food. It could be shopping. Right? It could be your job. It could be money. It could be possessions. It could be some hobby. It could be your spouse. It could be your ch- children. It's something in our lives where we run to when we're in pain. And uh, you know, think about it if you had children and they're in pain and they run to some other parent instead of you. Instead of running to you and hugging you and asking for help, they run to someone else. How hurt you'd be. Well, that's what Abraham is in danger of. Abraham loved Isaac, but he was in danger of loving Isaac more than God, violating the most important, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other person, no other thing that you love more than God. And so, God was uh, testing Abraham. This was the ultimate test. Isaac was now everything to Abraham. There was a danger of Abraham's affection becoming adoration. Before Abraham's life was all about depending upon God, trusting God. Now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was in danger of shifting. Now God was not saying you cannot love Isaac. God's not telling us we can't love things in this world. But God, Exodus 25, is a jealous God. He loves us with a holy love. He desires that we love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. See, religion is we're in control. Right? We can love whoever we want, whatever we want, long as 
You know, we pray, we fast, we give, we go to church, we sing, we do religious things. We can be in control. The gospel says no. gospel says, I don't care about your prayers, your fasting, your festivals, your religious works. All of that is rubbish if God is not the center of our hearts. God's concern is not our external deeds, our external righteousness. All of that is rubbish. What God seeks is that He reigns supreme, that we love Him above all in our hearts. So, God commands Abraham. God tests Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice. It's a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. Now, certainly upon hearing God's command, horror flooded Abraham's soul. Dark waves pounded him over and over again. A father told me recently, James, I couldn't do it. Right? If God told me to do what Abraham did, I couldn't do it. I couldn't give my son. I understand. That's why our faith is so weak. But Abraham, he's trusting in God. God was calling Abraham to put Isaac to death with his own hands. And then to incinerate the remains as a burnt offering to God. The test hit him where it hurt the most. Nothing else could hurt him more than giving up the son he loved. It was a tremendous test of faith. It is uh, an unimaginable test. Just Just think about what a sleepless, troubled night of torture and heartbreak he must have went through that night. And yet notice when morning comes, verse 3, though his heart is torn, Abraham obeys God. He doesn't wait a few days. He doesn't delay. He doesn't postpone. Next morning, early in the morning, verse 3, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham obeys. Now, we've got to make this distinction here clear. Obedience is not faith. Faith is not obedience. There are two separate things. Faith is faith. And faith produces obedience. And true obedience is always a fruit of faith. Obedience comes after. There are two separate things. Faith is believing in God. And obeying obedience is the result, is the fruit. And we see Abraham obeying God not out of duty, not out of of drudgery or some ritual to placate God. He obeys because he believes God. And we'll see his faith uh, demonstrated or revealed in the verses to come. By verse 4, three days have passed from Beersheba to Moriah. It's about a 40-mile journey. I mean, just think about all the thoughts that have raced through him. Think about what was going on in his heart. Abraham, on the third day, lifted up his eyes, saw the place from afar. Then Abraham, verse 5, said to the young man, Stay here and read carefully. I and the boy will go over there. We will worship. And the Hebrew is first person plural. And we will come again to you. Uh, That's a statement of faith. God promised me, Isaac, we will go. 
And Abraham had no real conception of even Lazarus rising from the dead, no clear understanding of Easter resurrection, but he believed God. We will come back to you. He didn't know how it was going to happen, but he trusted in God. Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. For in Abraham's heart, soon as God said, offer your son Isaac, Isaac was dead. It wasn't an option for him to obey or not. Isaac was dead. And three days later, he he got him back again. Verse 6, Abraham took the word of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. They both, they went both of them together. The climax is nearing. They are alone now, just the two of them, walking side by side. What a poignant picture of father and the son. The father is going through the greatest trial of his life. He is filled with pain. And Isaac has no idea. Isaac is just a young lad, just has no idea what's going on. And he asks a simple question. He says, my father, here am I, my son, Abraham replied. Behold, the fire and the wood. We have the fire, we have the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? This is the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac in the entire story. Verse 8 records uh, Abraham's response. And it's again a statement of faith. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So God provided Isaac. So it's true. Or God will find some other way. Statement of faith that God will provide. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. The slow, deliberate, calculated, blow-by-blow of descriptions of the events at this point is most impressive. The details are noted with frightful accuracy, wrote a commentator. Note the passivity of Isaac. He complies with the father. Then Abraham, verse 10, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. There is intent in his heart. True faith sets no limits. He is resolved to to obey God out of faith. Saw a painting of a of this, of this act, and Abraham is, has his knife raised, and he's thrusting down to slay his son. And the angel is behind him, reaching for his hand to stop him before it is too late. Verse 11, God intervenes. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand to the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You have demonstrated your faith. God always knew. Now God and Abraham and we know true faith. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, verse 13, and behold, 
Behind them was a ram caught in the thicket by its, by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name Pino, the Lord will provide. It is said, and, and to this day, right, it's a primary account, to this day, that place is called on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, because Abraham trusted God and obeyed. He passed the test. It truly was. Loving God first and foremost, praising God above all. And therefore, God blesses. God fulfills through Abraham redemptive history, the birth of the nation of Israel, through which the Messiah would come, and all nations are blessed. And that's why we call him Father of Faith. Two just uh, closing thoughts to bring this truth home to us. It's that point about God's love for us is a holy love. It is a holy love that He has for us. He desires not our happiness, not our comfort, not our pleasure, but He desires us to be holy and to love Him with all our hearts. He seeks to, uh, his intent is not to give us our desires, but to drive a wedge between our hearts and the idols of our hearts. We have no idea, looking at each other, we're all filled with good things, family, friends, money, jobs, possessions. But you and God know what is in your heart. And God wants your heart. God wants you and I to love Him first and foremost. He will not share us with another. He desires to drive away these functional saviors so that we might trust in Him and depend on Him alone. Let me read to you a quote from uh, Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. He wrote, think of the many disappointments and troubles that beset us. Look at them more closely. And you will realize that the most agonizing of them have to do with your own Isaacs. In our lives, there are always some things that we invest in to get a level of joy and a fulfillment that only God can give. The most painful times in our lives are times in which our Isaacs, our idols, are being threatened or removed. Now, when that happens, we can respond in two ways. We can opt for bitterness and despair. We will feel entitled to wallow in those feelings saying, I've worked all my life to get to this place in my career, and now it's all gone. 
or I've slaved my whole life to give that girl a good life, and this is how she repays me? We may feel a liberty to lie, cheat, take revenge, or throw away our principles in order to get some relief. Or we may simply live in a permanent despondency. Or option two, like Abraham, you can take a walk up into the mountains. You can say, I see that you may be calling me to live my life without something I never thought I could live without. But if I have you, I have the only wealth, love, honor, and security I really need and cannot lose. As many have learned and later taught, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. What is your Isaac that only you and God know? What are you boasting in, cherishing, prizing, adoring in your heart? And God has brought sorrows, trials, disappointments, heartaches in your life. God's brought a test in your life. Why? Not just to mess with you. The purpose, His intent is to make you holy. So that you might be devoted to Him in your hearts. To drive this idol away. And you might love God alone. John Newton wrote of this um, in his hymn. I asked the Lord that I might grow. We have it up here. Let's read for you. I'll just read. There he goes. Newton wrote this. 18th century. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray and He I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy warm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find. Thy all in me. You might feel like God is trying to kill you with the process. But God is trying to save you. Second thought, 
is uh, how do we drive away these idols that, that, that has ensnared our hearts, that has so taken root in our hearts. It is by remembering and believing that many years later, in the same mountains, another firstborn son was offered as a sacrifice. This son was a beloved son of God the Father. And he asked the Father in a garden, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Is there a way I don't have for me not to die and experience the cross, but not my will, your will be done? And the Father, though he loved him, sacrificed him on the cross. He screamed out on that tree, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No voice was heard from heaven announcing deliverance. He was sacrificed on that cross. And we find that though God spared Abraham, spared him from the pain of losing his son, God did not spare himself of that pain. He gave His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He is completely justified to require that we make that ransom payment. That we pay for our sins that we committed. That we sacrifice our lives and we give our firstborn sons as a ransom payment for our sins. But instead, He met He's a just and a justifier. He is righteous and merciful. He sacrificed His perfect Son so that our sins and the record of all our idolatries might be cleansed, washed away. He gave His Son out of love as a sacrifice for our sins. May Christ's love compel us. May Christ, God's love in, in Christ be our hope, be our confidence, be our boast as we run to Jesus and make Him our Redeemer, our Savior that He is and trust in Him, depend on Him, delight in Him as we are broken by the process of these trials and these testings and we depend on Christ. He will deliver us. He will set us free and make us holy as He is. Our Father, we thank You and bless You for Your holy love given to us in Christ. We thank You that You are holy because we are unholy. We desire unholy things for ourselves. We desire things that will meet just our sensual desires. Lord, that would just meet our comforts and our pleasures. But instead, Lord, you give us what we desperately need. Lord, you give us your gift of trials and sorrows and disappointments so that, Lord, you might purify us, so that we might be trained and learn to prize you and adore you and love you more than anything and more than life itself. God, we pray that you would 
take our Isaacs from us. Lord, and you would crucify them with your son, Jesus Christ. And that in our hearts, Lord, our love will be reserved for you alone. And in that way, our true rest, true peace will be ours. We pay all this in your name.